0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. In this episode, I'm joined by Mike Del Ponte. Mike is a serial entrepreneur and investor. He is also a CEO coach who has empowered founders to rapidly scale their startups to over $3 billion in total valuations. He is an expert in fundraising, revenue growth, and building world-class teams, among many other things. In this conversation, we talk about a lot, but uh, among a bunch of the different topics, we talk specifically about changing identities, and Mike shares how he had to change his own identity in order to level up and improve himself. We talk about how to listen to your calling, that voice, whether it's you know a religious calling or just an emotional calling or something you feel in your gut how to really hone in on that tune into it and understand what it's telling you to do and then we talk about how to reconcile the competing voices in your head so if you have one voice that's telling you to go out and work really hard and one voice that's telling you to get on the couch and sit down and kick your feet up you know what do you do with those two voices And and mike actually provides me a little bit of real-time coaching Which will hopefully be helpful to you as you listen, because I I know that these are issues that all of us deal with in one way or another. Really interesting conversation. Mike really knows his stuff and, and he knows a wide variety of stuff, which is why he's so helpful to startup founders, being able to coach them both on the business and the personal side, because, you know, let's face it, everything business is personal too. Without further ado, here is Mike Del Ponte. Mike, welcome to the show. Very excited to dive in here today. And you have an interesting background having been a business leader, startup founder yourself, and then using the services that you now provide to other people. So I think it'd be interesting to kind of explore all the different facets of who you are and what you do and and how you think about these topics. And so... That's purposely vague because I'd love to have you kind of introduce yourself and just share a little bit about what is it that you actually do and and how did you come to do this type of work?
1: Yeah, so I'm a CEO coach and I probably have the worst background to be advising CEOs. You know, I went to school to become a priest. So I grew up in San Francisco. I went to undergraduate on the East Coast. My freshman year of college, when all of my friends were like, I'm finally free from my parents, I'm gonna go party. I said to myself, I'm gonna become a priest. And uh, I pursued that and went to graduate school. But there was another thing that was pulling at me, which was entrepreneurship. And I had been a leader throughout my life. I had started some little things. And in 2008, I finished my graduate degree. I discerned out of the priesthood and I moved back to Silicon Valley. And that's really where I started my startup career and got into you know, what is now CEO coaching. I came to Silicon Valley at the height of the recession, 2008. I had no connections, no experience, no resume, no money. I had an Ivy League degree, and I was living with my mom. <laughs> and so not the typical DNA of a of, uh, you know, startup founder or VC. But I got in the startup scene. I hustled hard. I started three companies, uh, ended up doing some venture investing, and most importantly, I fell in love with coaching founders. I can tell a little bit if you're interested about working with a coach when I was a founder and CEO, but in short, it changed my life. It helped me sell a business. And I realized that founders, it's a lonely job. You know, you can't go to your board. You can't go to your team. You can tell your wife and friends or your husband and friends, but they might not understand what it's like to run a crazy startup. And so there's only one person typically that can really empathize with you, and that's a coach. And so after I sold one of my companies, I started advising and coaching founders. And that's what I've been doing for the last five years. I've been really blessed. Those companies are worth over $3 billion today. And now I have a solo coaching practice where I work one-on-one with startup CEOs.
0: Interesting. So I have a lot of questions around that, but I, I wanna unpack one thing about you, the priesthood story, if that's okay. So I'm always really interested with the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And I think that often those stories, whether we realize it or not, have such a huge impact on the decisions we make and the decisions we don't make. And to make a decision to go into the priesthood is a big decision. Like that's a that's an identity that gets layered on you of like, this is the type of person I am and that I'm going to be. And then to... Get out of that, like what is what was the process for you of dropping that identity or maybe changing that identity and actually getting to a decision to say, no, I'm going to course correct and go this way?
1: yeah, well, the backstory is that I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, very secular. Uh, I grew up Catholic, but outside of going to church, there was no real cultural Catholicism like O'Brien, you're in Chicago, right? There's a lot of that Irish Catholic. There are lots of churches and maybe there are feast days and, you know, all sorts of things. I didn't have any of that, but I went to a Catholic university as an undergrad and it kind of blew me away. You know, it was kind of the first time I saw nuns and priests walking around and I was really inspired by it. And at the same time, it was the height of the sexual abuse scandal, 2001. If you remember the epicenter of all of that was Boston and I was going to school at Boston College. And so literally, I would ride the train past the archbishop's mansion. And what I observed was that these amazing priests were walking around without their collars, right? They didn't want to be identified because of all the horrible stuff that was happening. And as a young, idealistic, optimistic 18-year-old, I said, I'm going to solve this. You know, I'm going to be one of the good priests. And so I was really inspired by that. I still have a very deep faith. And I thought, yeah, you know, I can contribute. I'm meeting all of these really smart, very successful priests that know multiple languages, that have PhDs, they could be CEOs if they wanted, but they've chosen a life of service. And and I want to do that. And so throughout my undergraduate, I studied theology, and then I went to graduate school and also studied theology and ethics. And the big thing, though, is that I was told, you know, the priesthood is a calling. Like, you need to be called. You don't decide. Like, oh, I think I'd be a good priest or, you know, I can help. And the distinction was the world needs and at that time needed more great priests. But that didn't mean that Mike Del Ponte needed to be a priest. And instead, I felt called to be an entrepreneur. And I realized that that is a form of ministry. I can still help people one-on-one. I can mentor them, care for them, and hopefully also have a bigger impact on the world. And so that's how I thought through my decision to move on. And uh, do good through the world of entrepreneurship. That's fascinating. What is
0: the difference between a desire and a calling to you?
1: Good question. Well, I, I really believe in calling, as in, you know, God calls you, like the biblical stories of, you know, God calling Abraham or God communicating with other figures. And so I really believe that each of us has a destiny. We're put on earth for a reason and that the calling is, is when God says, this is what I want you to do. And the difference between that and how most of us approach our life is this is a good opportunity or I'd be good at that, or I can make some money at that, or a friend's doing this. And so he invited me to join in. And so I'm a big fan of deep discernment and trying to hear that still small voice and get to my true self and what I'm really meant to do. And so that was part of my discernment back then and still even today. You know, you and I both have young families. And so I try and do that too. Where am I called to? This is a season where I'm really called to be a great husband and father. And it's really different than when I first started my company when I was 28 years old and I felt called to change the world through entrepreneurship. So I'm a big fan of, you know, silence and prayer and discernment to try and find out not just what I want to do or what might be good for me to do but where I feel really called to be.
0: So we might hopefully this is getting into the coaching stuff and so we can we'll get where we were going to go originally but I'd love to stay on this thread if that's okay. Because you hear people say a lot, you hear you hear religious people say I I really prayed on it and this is the decision that I feel, you know, God has wants me to do or the, the path that God is calling me towards. And for people outside of religion or, or who just maybe aren't as deep in their faith, I think that can feel, that could be like, okay, that's great. I'm glad for you. I don't really know what that means. And so when you are doing that type of reflection or when you're coaching somebody through that type of reflection, what are they... Like, What are they paying attention to inside themselves?
1: Mm -hmm. Great question. And there are many secular models. You know, if you think about the Greeks, like Plato and Socrates, they were trying to get to truth. You know, they're trying to get to the ultimate end, and they had certain ways to approach it, just like, you know, Christians do and other religious people do. I coach mostly in a secular manner, although some of my clients are Christian or Catholic, And so I'll give you a a very popular example. There's a model in coaching. One of the popular schools is the conscious leadership group, and they do a lot on decision making and how to discern what to do. And one of their popular models is using your head, your heart and your gut. Your head would be the analytical way to approach things. What's all the data? What are people saying? What are the questions I need to ask? What are the trends? The heart would be the emotions And they focus on three negative emotions. All emotions in the negative sphere they believe fall into fear, anger, or sadness. And so you could ask yourself, I'm about to make a decision. Do I feel fearful or nervous? Do I feel angry or upset? Do I feel sad or maybe resentful or regretful? And each of those tell you different things. For example, fear tells you to watch out. Maybe there's something you have to watch out for. Anger tells you to set boundaries, and sadness tells you to let go. And so you take your analytical thoughts and then say, "Hey, how do I feel about this? And are my feelings telling me something? Like I need to watch out for something. And then there's always our gut, our intuition. You know oftentimes, where we just feel pulled is where we should go. And so that would be a secular model of discernment that I might use with a CEO coach. If he's coming to me and saying, hey, I'm making a really big decision, should I sell my company? We could walk through that and I'd say, hey, you know, pause for a second. What are you thinking about? What are the emotions that you're sensing? You know, what's your gut telling you? And that would be one means of discernment.
0: Would you mind talking to a religious example for that as well? Because I, I think that would be interesting just to hear both sides of what that would sound like.
1: Yeah, you know, I just read a incredible book called Leisure: The Basis of Culture, which was written in the late nineteen forties by a Catholic philosopher. I think his name is Joseph Pieper. And uh, interesting because it's the rebuilding of Germany and Europe. You know, and so it's nineteen forty eight, and it's time to get back to work. And you have these very strong governments that are focused on work and the rise of Marxism, which is all about work. And he says something radically different, which is the whole basis of culture and life is leisure. And leisure actually means relaxing, slowing down, not being so utilitarian. And you do that to listen and for worship, because we can only really find truth when we slow down, silence ourselves, and listen. And also, same with worship, we can't be utilitarian about it. We cannot work our way into it to connect with God. We should be quiet. And so, I think the religious approach is a little different. It's very helpful to slow down and be quiet, even in a secular sense. And in particular, with startups, I work only with startup CEOs. They're going a million miles an hour. And so they almost never slow down. It's really hard to listen. So regardless of religious or secular, this step one, slow down, be silent, quiet your mind is so important. But in the religious sense, there are a few ways to go about it. Obviously, prayer would be a a huge one, not just being silent, but asking, you know, God, is there something that you want me to know? And if I sit here in silence, is there something that I'll hear, you know, internally, not necessarily audibly? There are also signs, you know, like, is there something that would be a sign? Like if I were to pray and I walk out of this church and someone says, Oh my gosh, you look like you'd be a great priest. And I've been trying to decide whether or not I should be a priest for a year. That'd be a sign. It it wouldn't mean that's exactly what happened, but it'd be interesting. It'd be a data point.
0: Yeah. Something to pay it, attention to.
1: Something to pay attention to. It'd be an input in a cell of a spreadsheet. So you have prayer, you have signs, and then you you have wise guidance. You know, you might want to speak to a priest, a spiritual director, a spiritual mentor. And so these are things that are maybe a little more religious, but if you were to map those out, it's actually kind of similar to the secular model of like, let's gather as many data points as we can. You know, let's really listen to our emotions and then let's check in on our, our gut. And are we aligned with this? I heard a really good quote. The quote was All problems in our life are the result of letting people or things that don't align with our values into our life. And that really rings true with me. And when I'm coaching people with what I'm seeing, it's when we allow our values to be compromised that we run into problems. And I think that's the beautiful thing with discernment, and in particular with religious discernment, is if you're really clear on your values, then you can compare things and make decisions based off of your values, not just based off of you know comp packages or trends or what our friends tell us to do.
0: Let's We are getting into the coaching work, so let's back it up a little bit because I think values is important. It's come up on here a lot. But when you start working with a new CEO, because I guess you only work with startup CEOs. So when you start working with a new startup CEO, what's the process look like in the beginning?
1: Sure. Well, I usually connect with my clients, which are startup CEOs, through their investors or through other founders. And typically what happens is, the most common is, a founder is about to hit rock bottom. They don't want to crash and they need a coach. And that was my experience. The first time I hired a coach, I was founder of a venture-backed company, a very powerful board, a lot of publicity early on. I started the company when I was 28 years old. I was terrified. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And after a little initial success, some beginner's luck maybe, I hired too much and I spent way too much money. And so we were headed towards rock bottom. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to save the company. And someone recommended that I speak with a coach and I did and saved the company, changed my life, you know, helped us get a good outcome. And so that's actually pretty common is that someone will come and they'll just say, you know, I've got three months of cash left. What should I do? Or I hate my co-founder. What should I do? Or, you know, we thought we had product market fit and this thing's not working. What should I do? And then sometimes people come more prudently and just say, hey, you know, I feel like I just need someone to talk to. I need some guidance or I just got off the phone with a client. He's a second time founder and he's just saying, you know, I've done this before, but I know I need some help. And so that's usually how we get connected. And that's usually the starting point. Interesting thing about coaching, though, is we'll start with the tactical, but always leads to the internal. So the tactical would be, I hate my co-founder what should i do should i fire him and the internal is like well what do you hate about yourself that you're projecting on your co-founder what are the insecurities that your co-founder is bringing up you know what are your fears and why does your co-founder spark those in you and so we start to work on the internal transformation of the client and so that's usually the starting point that's usually the content and then to answer your question on the early days is i go through an onboarding experience with my clients to really get to know them and their business. I digest as much information as possible, financial models, their last investor deck, sales decks, org charts, everything I can. And then I have them take some assessments and surveys and really get to know them. And then we do a 90-minute onboarding call where I have them walk me through their life because the most important thing is not what's happening in their business. It's what happened in their childhood. And usually we unearth some things about their childhood that still is leading them or maybe even controlling them 20, 30, 40 years later. Do you have
0: an example of what that might be? Just just one, Yeah. for instance?
1: Of, of course, yeah. N- not to, you know, I won't use names. All yeah, of yeah, my of clients are confidential. But myriad examples. I'll give you one. I have a client who's unbelievably smart, Ivy League degree, worked in the White House, very successful career. And sometimes he says, I just feel dumb. <laughs> he's not, he's brilliant. But when he was a kid, you know, there were expectations set on him by parents that maybe he didn't fulfill. Maybe they were projecting their fear of being immigrant parents and not being good enough and not being smart enough not knowing enough. And they transferred that onto him and he went throughout his life thinking, I don't know how to do this. He and I worked together. And it was funny, on our first call, he barely knew me. I said, you need to fire half your team. (laughs) And he said, no, I'm here to talk about sales. I said, no, 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 no. You've raised a lot of money, but you're burning way too much. You've scaled the team too fast. And the first thing we need to do is give you more runway." We've got to make sure that you're going to live for a couple of years so we could figure this thing out and you have time to sell and raise the next round and scale the company. And his concern with it was not that it was the wrong decision. He actually said, yeah, you're right. But then he said, but I I don't think I could do that. And so then it's like, well, why not? And that goes again back into childhood and disappointing people. And how's he going to look? Is he going to look stupid? Like, hey, you, you raise all this money and you can't figure it out. You hired all these people now to fire people. What are you, an idiot? But of course, that's not the case. And so we work through that and we start internally and he successfully laid off those people and did it in a really ethical, humane and, and beautiful way. And they're off to better jobs and he's got runway. He's got a more focused team. And so that's an example of if I didn't know his story, I wouldn't have been able to coach him
0: one question about that because i've talked to a lot of coaches on the show and just in life in general and you know the thing about coaching and therapies it's always you know ask the question let the answer come from the person from the client not from you and yet on the first call you're saying you need to fire half your half your people right like that's a little bit different maybe than what you hear from a normal coach of like, you know, we don't have the answers. You have all the answers. I've always found that to be like kind of a little bullshit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like if you're, if you're a coach, you should probably have at least an idea of what some of the right answers should be.
1: But like, how do you think about that balance? It's a great question. I had a, a client call me out the other day and I was doing the Socratic method with him and, uh, he's just, Tell me what to do. Right. Cut the, catch catch of the chase. I'm paying you a whole lot of money right now. I'm getting tired of your questions. Just cut I
0: know day. this is a thinly veiled attempt to get me to do something. Just tell me what that something is.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know the the desire of that is to train them to make the decisions on their own such that we don't have to tell them because if if you're an advisor you're a crutch and they come back to you and they need you and the purpose of coaching is to empower them so they don't need anyone and so You know, we do the Socratic method and different methodologies such that they can discover the right answer themselves as opposed to getting it externally. With that said, I think one thing that's a little different is, you know, I've been a three time founder and I've been a venture capitalist. So, you know, I've been around Silicon Valley for 15 years. And uh, in addition to coaching methodologies, sometimes it's like, yeah, I've seen this rodeo before, (laughs) you know, and you got to go fire these people. You've got to break up with your co founder, whatever it is. And so sometimes, the most effective thing to do is to just be direct and honest with them. And other times it's to help them find the truth. I usually, I'm very results oriented. So I'll just say, hey, what do we want to accomplish on this call? My goal is to accomplish everything. And so if they say, you know, first I want to talk about the hiring plan and then the fundraising plan and how to accomplish product market fit, I'm probably not going to have enough time to do the Socratic method and walk them, you know, around the garden for ninety minutes, hoping that they find an answer, we might just have to tick something off quickly, and then sometimes we we will. But but yeah, that's kind of how I do it, and my methodology is probably a little different than some coaches.
0: Have you have you watched the documentary Stutz or Stutes? No. So, it, are you familiar with it at all? What it is? Never heard of it. So Jonah Hill, the actor, recently released a documentary on Netflix where he interviews his therapist. And it's this guy, I think his name is Philip Stutz, S-T-U-T-Z. And they go through the method as well as sort of explore the relationship that the two of them had. And it's, I thought it was fantastic, but I had read a critique that he had some practices that were maybe a little too directional. You know, like one, I think one of the things he said was, you know, if somebody comes in and they're, All out of whack. He'll just say, you know, you need to sleep this amount, you need to work out this amount, and you need to eat this. And like, if you do those three things, you will feel better. And he makes some pretty bold claims about that. And this person was saying, you know, well, that, you know, that really goes against therapy and, you know, what we're taught and all that. And I, I get that to some extent, but I also get where he's coming from because I, I do think some people just need to be shaken and going and, pointed the way and saying like, Hey, we're going to work all this stuff out. But right now you, you can't see anything for yourself clearly. So like, I'm going to put you on this path that it's, it's at least going to point you in the right direction. And then we'll figure out the actual navigation as we go, but we're moving this way. So I'm just going to start walking you this way.
1: Yeah. I mean, if someone comes sleep deprived or hopped up on stimulants, You're not going to say, tell me about your childhood and how did you feel? You're going to say, hey, go get a good night's rest, a healthy meal, and let's talk about this tomorrow when you can actually listen. And then we can talk about your childhood. So yeah, there's a sensitivity to what's appropriate. One thing that's cool about coaching versus therapy is that it's very results driven. Therapy is amazing because it's healing. You can talk to someone confidentially, tell them anything, and over time, you can heal from past wounds, but it's not meant to drive results. You know, your therapist isn't going to say, like, show me your PL and and let us talk about how to increase EBITDA by 20 percent. Coaching is a little different. We do a lot of healing and we do a lot of inner work. but At the end of the day, we're hired to get results, especially in the startup world where you don't get results, you're dead. And so we focus on what is the most effective methodology. And for me in particular, I have a very multidimensional practice where sometimes i might say yeah let's talk about your nutrition let's talk about how your sleep is let's talk about your relationship with your wife and then we can go you know into extreme tactics we could go into you know neurological frameworks but it's about how do we get the best result for the client now not just what's most healing or what's popular to do
0: you know i love that definition the way that you just said that cuz i've asked people all the time what's the What's the difference between a therapist and a coach? And I've asked therapists and I've asked coaches. And I, the way you said it, I think, is the cleanest version I've heard, which is, if I can say it back, is a therapist is there to help you heal and a coach is there to help you get results. I think that's great. And not to say like a therapist can't help you get results and a coach can't help you heal, but the goal of the discipline is healing on the therapy side and results on the coaching side.
1: Yeah. One metaphor that was shared to me by my former coach and mentor is uh, therapy is like a submarine. The goal is to get you to the surface so you can breathe fresh air. But coaching is like an airplane. It can get you to the top of Mount Everest and can get you there really quickly. Some people need the healing first. Often we all do, you know. But then what do you do then? You know, and so I had a cool experience just last week. One of my clients, very traumatic family situation. When I met him, started coaching him just a few months ago, he had eczema so bad he was bleeding. He had open wounds on his hands. His hands were bleeding because he had stress-induced eczema that would dry and crack and then blood would come out. I hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks. And he goes, Mike, look at this. And it was healed. You could see the scars, but it wasn't dry and it certainly wasn't bleeding on his hands and his arms. It's like, it's all, it's all healing. And that was because some of the work that we did really deep work on that family trauma, which was really great. And I was really happy to see that. Now he's freed up to do the tactical stuff that he probably couldn't do before.
0: Yeah, I have a friend who recently released a podcast of her own talking about how she healed some of her emotional baggage and it, how she healed her emotional pain and it actually fixed the physical pain that she had been experiencing for a year or more.
1: Yeah, I have a similar story personally like that.
0: Yeah, it's it is wild how the body reacts to the things that go on in our lives. Stress and and other things, but like especially stress. You know, stress comes out of us in very weird ways.
1: Yeah, I was a uh, funny funny anecdote. I was talking to another client last week And I said, you know, it's so funny. Whenever I get a bad night of stress, I'm always thinking, should I change my pillow? Should I change my mattress? Was it too cold in the room or hot in the room? But the reality is when I don't have any stress, I sleep like a baby. So the problem's not my pillow, it's my stress. And I think that's a really good metaphor for a lot of things. Oftentimes, and this is very, you know, startup tactics, like, hey, just tell me like the one, two, three formula to increase revenue. It's like, we'll slow down for a second because there's something behind that that's prohibiting you from even implementing any strategy. And that's the multidimensional approach of with coaching, you can go deep. You can go into the internal and the healing and the neurological, but you can also go you know, straight up to tactics and strategies. And, and for me, I'm a, I love connecting people. So sometimes it's also a really helpful intro. Maybe we're on a call for 90 minutes and I do nothing impressive in terms of Internal breakthroughs, but I make an introduction that kind of changes the game for them. So I love coaching because it's so you can play so many of the pieces on the chessboard. You're not constrained to one methodology or certain industry norms. It's just like, how do we win? And, you know, with coaching, the more you learn, the more tools you have to help your clients.
0: Let me run a stereotype by you and you tell me if it's accurate or not, because I think of startup founder CEO and there are great examples out there and there are terrible examples out there. And I know a bunch of stories just from the network I'm in of founders who have a great idea, can get something off the ground, but... They're burning their people out. They're assholes to work for. They, you know, they won't address the skills gaps that they have, but are quick to point out the skills gaps for everybody else on their team. You you call it ego, call it fear, you know, whatever you want to call it. But like, there are a lot of, there are probably a lot of CEO startup founders where you get, where people would go like, man, that guy or girl needs coaching. Do you see that a lot or is that maybe just an overblown stereotype? And that'll be question A. And depending on how you answer that, I'll ask you a follow-up.
1: Okay, great. I would say I would see that behavior in almost every industry. But it's more acute in startups for a few reasons. Number one, more money. Right? You could raise tens of millions of dollars and now the pressure is really high and you're making big bets. Number two, A lot of founders, first-time founders are young, like I was, don't know what you're doing, scared to death. And number three, in a startup, uh, the CEO has a lot of power. He or she could be a dictator. And so I think what's happening below the surface is very human. And that's why I said you could see it in every industry. You could see it in nonprofits. You could see it in entertainment and government. You're going to see a lot of the things that you mentioned in almost every industry. But it's more acute for those reasons. It's like you're just pouring gas on a fire. And some people are really talented, even when they're first time founders and they don't have that issue. Repeat founders have less of that issue. But if you're like me, you know, a kid in your 20s with a bunch of money, scared to death, and a lot of pressure, you could end up being the stereotype that you just spoke.
0: And How do you help people through that? Because I imagine, like you said, people come to you either because they're referred at rock bottom or because their VC is like, you need to work with a coach. Neither of those are necessarily inviting experiences, you know, where somebody comes eagerly to your office to meet with you. And so how do you get somebody comfortable quickly with the fact that they actually do need some help? And should open themselves to that help.
1: Yeah. Well, first, I should probably clarify. Uh, my clients come through their investors and other founders, but typically they will first say to an investor or founder, "I need help. Who should I talk to?" Mm, okay. Uh, when it's when it's sending the kid to the principal office, like, "Hey, Mike, you suck as a CEO. You need to go hire a coach." That doesn't work very well. And sometimes it's a subtle, like, "Hey, Mike, you know, you should really." go speak with this individual, wink, wink. I think you'd hit it off. And the person is saying, you really need a coach, but I'm not going to say it as explicitly. Yeah. it just so
0: happens this person is an executive coach.
1: Is an executive coach and it's helped people like you. So that's the first thing is, is, it's rare for me to coach someone, and I don't think I've ever done it, that does not want coaching or that walks into it not knowing what they're getting involved in. What I will say though is most people that work with me, they think they want coaching on something else, and they soon find out they want coaching on what's most important to them and So the examples I gave you know around you know I want to fundraise, but really, it's you know I'm scared to death, and I can't this investor reminds me of my dad who I'm scared to talk to, and so I can't raise money. you know that's kind of how it is to answer your question though, how do they get comfortable with it? You know, obviously there's the table stakes stuff of rapport and credibility and they come to me because I've worked with a lot of other founders and I've been in their shoes before. But the proof is really in the pudding. Typically what happens is we are talking about tactical things and then I'll shine a light on something that they haven't seen or they haven't wanted to look at it for a long time. And they realize that that is actually the linchpin. And if we can unpin that part everything else can flow. And so there's kind of an introductory period of getting to know each other, but then there's a there's something that no one else has worked with you on before. And if we do this together, this could change everything. And usually at that point, they say, that feels uncomfortable, but I'm willing to go there. And the first time they get results from that, they experience like this unlock or this transformation where they're more confident or they're more clear that's when they start feeling a bit hooked. Like, okay, maybe this thing's actually gonna work for me. Can
0: you talk to how you help clients identify what those linchpin things might be? Because I think that is important. And that rings true for me because I was reading about habits over the years and understand and have heard people talk about linchpin habits or foundational habits where like I know for myself, if I am getting... A certain amount of workouts a week. If I'm getting four or five workouts a week, I just know that a bunch of other stuff in my life happens better. Or, you know, for some people, it might be if they get eight hours of sleep and they wake up refreshed in the morning, everything else just seems to run a lot smoother. Can you talk about how you help somebody figure out what the maybe the linchpin blockages
1: are? Yeah. So I think of myself a little bit like how a doctor will first do a diagnosis and then come up with the best remedy. And when we're talking about those linchpin issues, that there's a little detective work to be done. And just as a doctor to do the diagnosis, we'll take in inputs. They'll say, hey, how how long have you been feeling this way? What's your diet been like? Do you have any other symptoms? Does this run in your family? I'll do some of that myself. And it may start on that level that you are talking about, O'Brien, like, hey, well, how's your sleep? How's your exercise? How's your diet? How's your relationship with family and friends? But it could also be an exploration of when you experience that problem, what do you feel? Or when you experience that problem, how did that show up around the dinner table when you were a kid? You know, so there are all of these questions that I can ask to start a diagnosis. And there are often tells like at poker, you know, there's like a tell. And so luckily, most of my sessions are over Zoom. And it's a really powerful medium to watch people shrug their shoulders or look to the side or their voice changes tone or something like that. So oftentimes at the beginning, going back to that Socratic method, I'll be asking questions to try and find the deepest issue that we have. And then once I've identified that, I will apply different methodologies to find the best way to solve it. It's very different than someone who just says, I'm trying to think from our last conversation. I just had a coaching call and one of my clients said, Hey, you know, we've been working with an advisor. She's amazing. She wants the co-founder title. Should we give it to her? That's hyper tactical. Like, okay, great. You know, let's talk about all these types of issues. That's not a deep linchpin issue. If he said, you know, I can't bring on a co-founder because I don't trust anyone. (laughs) I'd say, okay, well, let's talk about your trust issues. Right? So they're kind of two different categories, but for those linchpin issues, it starts with the diagnostics. And then it's, what are the methodologies that might help? And it's an application of the methodologies to see which one does help, kind of like a doctor with different prescriptions. Well, we tried this and it didn't really solve it, so let's try this. And then of course with coaching, it's an ongoing relationship. I meet with my clients every other week. And so you get to see the evolution. What did we try last week? What got implemented? What worked and what didn't? What were your relationships to it? And that's really cool because it's kind of like with a doctor, we often only see them when we're sick, but if you were to meet with a doctor every two weeks, you would be way healthier and they would know you so much better and they'd probably give you a lot less prescriptions, (laughs) right? And so that's part of coaching too.
0: So I'm glad you said that because that leads right into what my next question was, which is, let's say somebody, okay, so somebody wants to do this work, they sit down with you, they uncover what these linchpin issues are, they they identify what the next steps are and what their plan is. Changing is hard and takes a long time. And it's really easy to revert back. And I just, anecdotally, I started a new workout routine the other day that is focused around relieving pain because over the years, I've just developed all these little nicks and dents and, you know, all these little issues that have become chronic and are now very limiting as far as like what I can do range of motion. And I like to do a lot of stuff physically. So I started this program. It's great, makes a ton of sense. I'm excited about it. It starts pretty slowly, though. And on day three, I'm sitting there going like, this is kind of like, you know, I'm starting to rethink the program. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is a this is a 3 month program i know i know all the good reasons and yet my head still wants to take me away from this plan that i've put in place and i you know i caught myself and was said to myself like you idiot just do the workout get through the first week even before you let yourself complain about something so th- i think that's that feeling is real when we want to do something it's great in the planning phase it can mean a lot to us but when you actually have to do it every day and change something that is difficult or painful or, or has historically been triggering for you, it could be tough to do that every single time. So how do you help people through that process to make it stick?
1: Yeah. Well, do you want to use that example? And I'll give you a little coaching on the workout. Sure. Cool. So what I heard was part of you wanted to do this workout because you have these injuries. And you want to be able to do more sports and activities. And you believe, part of you believes that this workout routine is actually going to help. And so you should stick it out and do it for 30 days or a few months or something. And then another part of you is like, this is a waste of time. It's taking too long. It's too slow. Is that accurate? That's part that's part of it.
0: It's, you know, this is too slow. I and just boredom. Just like this is this is kind of boring here in the first three days.
1: Yeah. Is it? This is boring. It's a waste of my time. This is boring. I don't believe it's going to get results. What what was that part?
0: It's just that it was boring and in the boringness it allowed my mind to run. I uh, got it. Yeah. And then I and then I caught it and said, "No, this is so dumb. Like why like let it go. Get to two weeks." It was just like the impatience of like I just want to be at the end of this thing. And it's like no, this is a 3 month thing. So just take your time, get through the first week. Let's not be let's not be bemoaning how long this is taking when you you haven't even committed a week to it yet.
1: Mhm. So there's impatient O'Brien and then the other O'Brien sounded almost like the coach. Like come on, you know, stop complaining, come on, let's do it. Get off the ground. We're going to do this workout. Let's go. Yep. Okay, cool. So you have Coach O'Brien and Impatient O'Brien. By the way, impatient O'Brien sounds a little younger.
0: (laughs) It's probably true.
1: Yeah. Okay, perfect. We won't go into childhood and all that type of stuff, but you have two parts of you. And that makes total sense. We all have this experience where we say, ah, part of me wants to go to the party tonight, but part of me just wants to stay home and watch a movie, right? And the key to answering your question of sustained change is to actually integrate those parts. So, out of those two parts, where you have Coach O'Brien and Impatient O'Brien, which one do you prefer? Coach O'Brien. Yeah, Coach O'Brien seems like the smart one and the mature one and the more optimistic one. The you know, Impatient O'Brien sounds kind of like a complainer. You know, kind of annoying. Coach okay. O'Brien's
0: going to get a lot more done over time.
1: Yeah, Coach. O- we believe Coach O'Brien uh, has the winning solution. Do this workout. It's going to help your body. You're going to be able to do more. But what's good about Impatient O'Brien?
0: That there's a drive to get things done.
1: Perfect. Exactly. And if Impatient O'Brien could say something to Coach O'Brien, what would he say?
0: He would say, all right, I'll give you a chance here, but this better work.
1: Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. I'll give you a chance. You're saying the impatient part would say like, all right, I'll try it out. You know, I don't love it, but I trust you. And then this better work. Yeah. Yeah. This better work. And then what would coach O'Brien say to impatient O'Brien?
0: Hey, we're going to get where you want to go. You just need to give me the time to get there.
1: Yeah. We're going to get there. We're going
0: to get there in a much better, healthier way. And you're gonna be able to do much more than you ever thought you could do, but you're going to have to give me the time to get us there.
1: Perfect. And then one last time, what would impatient O'Brien say back to the coach?
0: This better effing work.
1: <laughs> yeah. Impatient O'Brien is, uh, is still a little skeptical,
0: but yeah. do you- well, maybe not skeptical. I think impatient O'Brien knows that that would work, but it is the, it's just that like, let's hurry up and let's get there. Like I have a, so we I don't know, maybe this is opening too much, but There is definitely a part of me that's like, we only get one shot at this life and the clock's running from the beginning and you don't know when it's gonna end. And so if there's something you wanna do, let's do it while you're here. And there's a like that is a driving force for me in a lot of the things that I do. And so there's always a little bit of that in my head, like, man, I gotta get so much of this stuff done.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I'm pretty sure you have some cool stories as to, you know, why you believe that and how that's played out and what's been beneficial in your life. And and some of those things so if if in the future, let's say you're I think you said we're three days into it, if you're on day six and impatient O'Brien pops up again and tries to derail the train, how would you address that?
0: I'd just say, remember why we're doing this,
1: yeah, exactly, yeah, remember why we're why we're doing this, and do you feel like I created these two? Uh, personas, like Coach O'Brien and Impatient O'Brien, and it felt like they're pretty far apart and they're kind of arguing or bickering. Do you feel like those parts are actually a little more aligned?
0: It does feel that way. Yeah. And I've done, I mean, I've, I cheated a little bit and that I've done some parts work before, and I will say it has been effective. And the first time I did it was with a friend of mine who's also a psychotherapist and She's been on this podcast, Carolyn Sellers, and she's fantastic, but I was like, "I like you a lot. this feels weird. I don't know about this, and then by the end of it, I was like, "Oh wow, this is really powerful stuff so i do I do like the where you went with that in okay, so you have these two voices, let's actually like let's actually personify those two voices and let's have them have a conversation because we need to reconcile something here,
1: yeah. And for your audience, I just wanted them to see instead of me describing for them to hear one methodology that could uh, start to create some sustained change, not, oh, Brian, come come on, just do the do the workout, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not that might last 15 minutes, but sustained change is actually healing. And if I knew you were familiar with and comfortable with parts work, we could have gone extremely deep and, you know. (laughs) Don't want to make you cry on your own podcast, but you know, like you know, the power of this, which is, you know, the the depths internally are infinite. And if you do want to create really sustained change, or if you want to do a full U turn, going back to the metaphor of like coaching is like a plane, and you can get to the top of Mount Everest fast. You can go really deep, and you can do some pretty radical things, neurologically, psychologically, physiologically, and that's really the beauty of coaching. You know, it's. We often know what to do. In that case, of course, we all said, oh, Coach O'Brien's so much smarter. You should just stick with this plan. It's going to be good for your body. But there are often internal issues. Things, you know, Coach O'Brien was walking one direction. Impatient O'Brien was walking another direction. I call that like the tug of war. If you're pulling in two different directions, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you can recruit one side to come over to the other, you can start running really fast. And so that's just an example of how we might work together to create sustained change or to get someone to do something that they feel not yet prepared to do.
0: Yeah, I think that's important is that it's not just about listening to the one voice. It's about recognizing the alternative voice, the one that's slowing you down. It's about actually giving that voice a voice and actually listening and saying, "What is? what are you trying to do? What are you trying to do here? Like, let's let's hear it let's have it out let's see what your issues are what we need to address and let's try to reconcile some of those issues because we know we're moving in this direction we know we're going to listen to this person and and i like your tug of war like you can listen to the smart person who's pulling on the left but that doesn't mean the person is going to stop pulling on the right and so you're not you're you can listen to them all you want but there's still going to be that tension trying to hold you back
1: yeah exactly and at first, you know, all the parts of ourselves, and for those who are unfamiliar, our self is made up of of many parts. And so just like as a body is made up of many cells, our identity and ourself is made up of many parts. And so we think of ourselves as one person. Like I'm Mike Del Ponte, I'm a coach, and I'm a smart guy. Okay. But I'm also Mike Del Ponte, and I'm a spear fisherman, and I do all sorts of dumb stuff in the ocean trying to catch fish, right? And both of those things are true. And oh, by the way, I have thousands of other parts. And so what's really effective is to say, well, all parts of ourself are trying to do something good. They just have different methodologies. And so if we can explore why each part is doing something that they believe is good, we could honor that and say, your intention is good, but there's actually something a little bit better. Because I loved Impatient O'Brien. Like, hey, let's just get this done. I want results now. Awesome. We want results too. But can you see also how maybe Coach O'Brien's right? Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Well, now we're on the same side of the tug of war and we're starting to run instead of just getting paralyzed and pulling in two different directions.
0: Yeah. I'm glad we're having this conversation because I haven't thought about this in a while. And I like the way you're talking about it. Because I know if, if you really get into parts work, there are some therapeutic definitions of what some of these parts are but i i think it's also just as helpful i would to me it it seems like it would be just as helpful just to recognize that anytime you have two competing voices in your head that those are just acknowledge that those are two parts and listen to each part and what they're trying to do like that's a good exercise to do hey i really want to do this thing and i really want to sit on the couch okay what is what does couch O'Brien wants and why does couch O'Brien want what he wants and what does this get up and go O'Brien want and, and why does he want those things? And can we reconcile those, you know, whatever the two competing voices are, if there are two or more competing voices, just that that could be a good prompt just to hear them out.
1: A hundred percent. And again, going back to some differences between therapy and coaching, a therapist may say, okay, we're dealing with internal family parts and you know, you have yourself and you have the exiled parts and your childhood and we're going to work over this over a long period of time. With coaching, you might just call out like, well, it sounds like part of you wants to sell the company and part of you doesn't. What's good about the part that doesn't? You know, like, and they, they give the answer and like, oh, wow, I did this actually recently with a client and he had this crazy breakthrough and he I'll, I'll give you a little context. He was an executive in a past life but that kind of crashed and burned, he got betrayed by some business partners. And so now he's rebuilding his career and he feels like he needs to be a successful executive in the same industry to prove himself and to finish that race. But he also feels like he wants to follow his passion, which is creative writing. And so he was thinking, like he keeps saying, well, I wanna be a creative writer, but should I apply for a job as you know chief operating officer of this company? And it was very simple. It was like, hey, well, it sounds like, you know, part of you wants to be a creative and part of you wants to be an executive. What would the creative part say to the executive part? And he filled in the blank and he started crying. He said, I never realized that that part of me is like controlling me. I'm not an executive anymore. And it's okay that I was in the past and I'm not moving forward. I'm a creative. And both parts of me is beautiful. It's just one was a little more prominent during another period of my life and for him, that was a huge breakthrough, and and is now giving him some, you know, direction. And there was no magic, you know. I don't have to talk to him for ten sessions. It was just like, yeah, part of you wants this, part of you wants that. Why don't they talk to each other and let's see what they say?
0: Interesting. I uh, that resonates with me because I do have a creative side that I enjoy. I've talked on here about writing uh, and creative writing as well, and so. I uh, those two parts talk to each other in my head a decent amount as well. Mike, this is fantastic. I've really enjoyed the conversation. As as we wind down now, just would be curious, like when it comes to the work that you're doing, what do you think people are getting wrong or and or what like what are you just sick of talking about? What's what's just way overplayed?
1: (laughs) Great question. Well, you know, Steve, not Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. Bill Gates and many other smart people have said everyone needs a coach. But I think what a lot of people get wrong is they think they need some kind of guru or a professional coach like myself that's very expensive. I think what's more important is you just need someone you can talk to honestly and consistently that has your back and keeps confidence and will listen to you. And so I think what I'm sick of is that a lot of coaches want to be these guru, swamis, you know, with all the right answers and buy my books and my $10,000 course and all that type of stuff. Most people don't need that. What they need is like a really good friend or a great mentor or a colleague that can have a coaching relationship with them. And that can be really powerful in their life. So that'd be my answer.
0: I love that. I love that. What has you most excited about the work
1: that you do? Most excited is that I get to see the results of these amazing founders that I work in. You know, the cool thing with startups is the connection between the founder CEO and the results created are really tight. You know, it's like, we're not talking about quarterly statements. We're talking about what did you do this morning and what's happening this afternoon. And so I love working with founder CEOs and they walk out of a session feeling really confident and with clarity And they put something in place that day or that week, and we could have massive results. So I I always love seeing that one-to-one connection.
0: Fantastic. And then the last question that I ask everybody, and I think you have an interesting perspective on this, having worn a bunch of different hats, but what in your mind is the purpose of business?
1: Well, to use the parts framework that we had before, part of me, probably the younger or maybe greedier part would say to make money. And part of me, the you know saintly or aspirational or maybe the priestly part of me would say to do good in the world. But the one that I'm resonating mostly with is to just be yourself. That the point of business is just to step into the shoes you were gifted. And by being your authentic self, you'll have the biggest impact and you'll probably make the most money. And it doesn't have to be fancier or more aspirational than that. It could just be, I feel really called to do this work and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and see where it takes me.
0: Fantastic. Mike, this is awesome. If people are still listening, God bless you, first of all. And second of all, if they're saying, you know, hey, I need a little more of Mike Del Ponte in my life. Where can they find you, learn more about what you do and, and even engage you?
1: Yeah, MikeDelPonte.co. If you want to learn about my coaching practice, and if you want to follow me, I'm most active on LinkedIn. So just look for Mike DelPonte. I think there's only one of me out there, and uh, give it a follow. And I post fairly frequently about coaching, startups, leadership, CEOs, management, culture, et etc.
0: Fantastic. Well, I would encourage anybody who is even a little bit curious about this or feels like they might need this in their lives to check that out. I've worked with coaches several times on several different issues and it it always has been a positive. So Mike, appreciate you coming on the show and appreciate what you're doing.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.